0: the Apiango Line and I'm Kristen Marchand. Welcome back. We're here again today at the old Barry's Bay train station, the last of its kind in all of Canada. And we're here again to tell you a little more about your very own global village on the World Wide Web. Today we've got a very special performance by the Apiango Readers Theatre. A few weeks ago, our local troupe of voice performers celebrated one of our famous school teachers, Mrs. Shala, who was born nearby in Wilno in 1819. When she was nearing her 80th birthday she wrote an unpublished autobiography of her life and times in and around Barry's Bay. It's not the sort of story that people who don't know this area often expect. There's a sense that we locals are, well, sometimes cut off from the rest of the world, especially back in the 19th or early 20th centuries. Well, as you will soon find out tonight, that's not exactly true. Even a will girl can somehow find herself in Chicago before the First World War. So let's find out more about her as we join the Apiongo Readers Theater as they perform the Life and Times of Mrs. Shala in front of a live audience right next door at one of our favorite neighbors, the Apiango Senior Center.
1: Good evening, I'm Michael Siklovchewski, and welcome to another evening here at the Opiango Senior Center in lovely downtown Barry's Bay. I'm joined tonight by two members of our Apiango Readers Theatre, Kristen Marchand and Karen Yakuboski. And do we have a show for you. As many of you know, May 3rd is a big day around these parts. It's the National Day of Celebration for those among us who have Polish or Kashub roots, and particularly for those who have roots deep in the soil just down the road in Wilno, Canada's oldest Polish settlement. Last year at this time, we brought you a whole host of Nobel Prize winning authors from Poland to tickle your fancy. And so this year, we thought we'd do something a little more local to celebrate Polish and Kashub culture up here along the apiongo Line, one of the main colonization arteries for emigrant settlers back in 19th century eastern Ontario. So, we canvassed far and wide, up and down the Madawaska Valley, hoping to find bits and pieces from a wealth of local Polish and Kashub authors. That's when we heard about A Hidden Treasure, a memoir written by Elizabeth Catherine Etmanski, born in 1890, though known as Mrs. Shalla by many of us who fondly remember her as our grade three teacher back in the 1960s. At least we thought we knew Mrs. Shalla, a sweet old teacher long past retirement age, but who somehow found a certain joy in working with eight and nine-year-old little boys and girls. Little did we know exactly who she was, a far more wonderful woman than just the kind old teacher who also tried to teach us Polish in her spare time. But enough about who we thought she was. Now, just listen to her own words, her voice, and you'll know why she remains one of the great unsung heroes of our very own homegrown generation of Polish and Kashub settlers who make us who we are today.
0: The story of my life is written solely from the fragments of fading memory, which will still remain with me at this late age of 79 years. The memories are available to me, so I shall depend completely on what I have heard or experienced and remembered. My parents were two of the most wonderful people who made their way to America from Poland, searching for the freedom of life which was denied them under German, Austrian, and Russian occupation of their mother country. All of us are prone to evil, and as we look back, we wonder what good we have or have not done. So I ask myself, is anyone happier because I passed this way? Does does anyone remember that I spoke to them today? Is a single heart rejoicing over what I did or said? Did I leave a trail of kindness or a scar of discontent? As I close my eyes in slumber, will the merciful God say, You have earned one more tomorrow by the work you did today. My father, John Atmanski, son of Valentine and Veronica Terzinski, was born in the year 1853 in Kalisz, Poland, and came to this country when his family emigrated from Poland, along with many other families when he was just one year old. They settled in the township of Sherwood on a farm about five miles north of Wilno. My mother, Mary Kodrowski, daughter of Casimir Kodrowski and Catherine Burrant, left her home in Poland and came to Canada with neighbors who were emigrating when she was about 14 years old. She was born in 1856 in German-occupied Poland. Her journey across the ocean was one of danger and anxiety as the winds blew the sail ship hither and thither, causing much seasickness and illness among the passengers. It was only after seven weeks of this perilous voyage that the ship landed on the shores of the New World. During the voyage, some of the sick died and were buried at sea. After disembarking, the crowd of colonists made the long journey to the settlement around Brudenell and Wilno. There, my mother was fortunate in obtaining employment with a wonderful Irish family, the McCarthys in Brudenell. She often told us how kind they were to her and gave her a home while her own parents and family were still in Poland. The reason for their not coming when she did was that they did not have money to pay for their passports. At the McCarthys, my mother learned much about housekeeping as well as respect for religion and especially for priests, this, she later inculcated to her family. Mr. Bill McCarthy of Killaloo is a member of that McCarthy family. My parents, Johnet Mansky and Mary Kodrowski, were married in the year 1877 and settled on a farm adjoining John's parents' farm in Sherwood Township, where they lived and farmed for 28 years. Six children, Frank, Helen, Leo, or Alan, as he was later called, Anne, John, and Mary composed our family before I was born on November 19th, 1890. What plans did God have for me as he appointed this particular day for my entrance into his wonderful world? I'm still asking that question and searching for the answer. There was no problem in choosing my name as the 19th of November is the feast day of Saint Elizabeth of Hungary. The belief of those times was to name the child after the saint on whose feast it was born. The feast of St. Catherine falls on November 25th, so I became Elizabeth Catherine, destined to imitate those two saints. Alas, I fear they were very often disappointed in me as my life led me through childhood years with their petty faults and downfalls, then through young years when serious thoughts are far from the minds of the young, then mature years and the more sober years of old age. I was baptized a few days after my birth in the church of St. Stanislaus Kostka, which was situated about a mile south of the village of Wilno. This church was burned and the only landmark there is is the little old cemetery where are the remains of the brave colonists who cleared the forests and paved the way for us, And spared nothing in order to give their descendants a better life and opportunity in this great country of canada i do not suppose it was very difficult to choose godparents for me my parents had very particular friends in the persons of mr and mrs jacob lipinski who lived on a farm about five miles away mr lipinski was a very eager hunter and so was my father Every year, he would come to my father's for the hunting season, which used to be the first two weeks of November. So it was that Mr. Lipinski and his wife, Josephine Voldock, were my sponsors as I received the saving waters of baptism. I can remember my godfather on his many visits during my early childhood. He would hold me on his knee and sing a little ditty.
1: It
0: was about a beautiful valley comparing it to an animal, with feet of elm, horns of oak, and tail of linden. After me were born five more children, two boys and three girls, Peter, Susan, Angus, Barbara, and Alice. Altogether in the family, there were five boys and seven girls, with my parents totaling a family of 14.
2: From the age of 18, my father held the position of Renfrew County Constable until he was unable to be active in this capacity. Then he was made Honorary County Constable, which he held till his tragic death, November 12, 1925, when he was killed in a hunting accident. My mother died in 1951 at the age of 95. She had made her life very useful to her family and when they did not need her, she spent a great deal of her time knitting. During the war for soldiers and for her children and grandchildren. When I was about three years old, in 1893, an epidemic of diphtheria spread through the community and many children died from this dreadful disease. In some homes, almost all the children died. There were no miracle drugs as we have now to fight this or stop its spreading. Our family did not escape. Helen, who was then about 14, and Anne, 10 years old, fell victim to the disease, and died within two months of one another. But the other children survived. I was too young to understand and share the sorrow with my parents and older brothers and sisters. I can best remember them by visits to their graves in the cemetery behind the old church, St. Stansalas Koska, for my mother took us to say a little prayer before Mass on Sundays. Everyone who attended church in Wilno on Sundays visited their loved one's grave before Mass or other devotions. Anyone neglecting to do this was considered amiss in their obligations. Before Mass, there was the singing of Gojinki, the little office of the Blessed Virgin. During Lent, Gorski Zawa, or Bitter Sorrows, was sung. These hymns were sung by the congregation led by a special man, usually in the person of Mr. Valentine Szepeski, who was a singer of great renown and a born leader. Life was pleasant, and though we did not have the entertainment of theater, television, or radio, We were happy in the simple entertainments that were available. For the grown-ups and teenagers, there were family gatherings with dancing in the evenings, especially after a bee, when neighbours came to help build a barn or other buildings. In those days, you never hired someone to help you with work. Usually, the neighbours got together to do the work. There was no thought of pay. You returned the favor to your neighbors when they needed help. It was a wonderful way to live. People got in contact with one another although they lived miles apart. Children were not idle, so they did not find life boring. There were chores outside for boys and girls. They looked after the feeding of cattle, horses, sheep, chickens, turkey, geese, and ducks. In the evening, they helped to shell beans or strip feathers. While we were doing this, my mother told us hair-raising stories about robbers and murderers. We found out later that the idea of telling us such stories was to keep us awake longer, and thus the work progressed. One of the favourite pastimes for the whole family usually Sunday afternoons, was to look at pictures through a stereoscope. Two pictures of the same object are viewed, one by each eye, and the pictures appear to have three dimensions. You could adjust the picture to the proper distance where it showed to the greatest advantage. We had a home set of pictures depicting the life of Christ. It served very well as a booster to our knowledge of religion and at the same time, a way of entertainment. My father was one of the more progressive farmers and owned a couple of team of horses, a buggy, a wagon, a sleigh. So he was often called upon by less fortunate to drive their sick to the doctor, which meant to Eganville, or for their babies to be baptized. These requests he was never known to refuse, And so it was that my parents had many godchildren in the neighborhood. My first remembrance of her home was a log shanty with a roof of scoops divided into two rooms. I was too young to remember much about this shanty home. A new home, a large two-story house was built when I was about five years old. The carpenter was Alex Rumleski, one of our good friends and neighbors. He was the father of Charlie Rumleski, our present day jeweler in town. He had to plane the boards by hand as planing mills were unknown. Therefore, shavings were feet deep under his carpenter's table. Mr. Rumleski possessed a famous pipe decorated with crow's feet under the bowl. My brother Peter, who was younger and often eyed this pipe with interest, And one day, while Alex was eating his dinner, we wandered into the house and there was the pipe. The temptation was strong. Pete picked it up, put it in his mouth and puffed, pretended to smoke. When Alex returned, he discovered what had been going on. He caught Pete by the braces, as all boys wore braces then, and gave him a few claps on the derriere. Away went Pete, but not for long. He returned for revenge, unnoticed, with a match. He lit the shavings under the carpenter's table. It took swift action and hard work by Mr. umleski to quench the flames. He then dealt with Pete. I imagine Pete couldn't sit comfortably for a few days.
1: My father was a lumberman and jobbed for many years for the Campbell and McNabb Lumber Company. Every winter during lumbering operations, the men who worked for my father boarded and lodged at our house. Most of the head men of the company were not Catholics. My father also had personal Protestant friends. Ecumenism was something we learned in our young days. We were taught to respect the faith of others and practice our own. We also had opportunity to learn the English language which accounted for the fact that all the family, as well as my parents, spoke good English. A very special friend and classmate of mine through these years, while attending at School Number 5 in Sherwood, was Katie Lipinski. She was the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. John Lipinski, in whose home we had classes before SS Number 5 was built. She married Walter Polbetsky in the winter of 1915. At that time, I was teaching in the Wilno separate school near the church. The wedding party met me on the way to school and invited me to share their drive, so I had the honour of being with my old friend on her marriage day. Katie was the mother of Betty, Mrs. Dr. Chepesky. Up to the year 1898, there were no schools which we could attend. My oldest brothers, Frank and Alan, attended the separate school at Wilno, near St. Stanislaus Church, which was a goodly six miles away, so they had to be driven at least one way, so their attendance there was very short. The first public school, SS Number no. 5 Sherwood, was built on the corner of the Henry-Yantha property, but classes began six months before that in our house, and also in the home of Mr. and Mrs. John Lipinski, for two months at a time. This was to even up the distance children had to walk from all parts of the school section. Our first teacher was Edmund Witkowski, who was the organist at our church. He firmly believed in the old adage, spare the rod, spoil the child. Most of the children attending were older than I. We all made swift progress. In a few days, everyone knew their alphabet. Within a week, we could all count to 100. Then came addition. I was distracted somehow and didn't hear the explanation the teacher gave. This was only given once. No repetition. And then an addition question was given for us to do. I was stuck, not knowing what to do. I feared the consequences, so I stretched my neck to look onto Anthony Beanish's slate and copied his work this was my first cheating in school but it taught me a lesson afterwards i always paid attention to the teacher's explanation i attended public ss number five Sherwood for about four or five years until i had reached what was then called junior fourth class being the last class in elementary school after which you wrote your entrance to high school examination Some of my other teachers during this time were Miss Kubaszewski from Renfrew, Miss Hannah Butler, who was a cousin of Mrs. Martin Daly, Margaret Cull, and Charles Gorman, who later became Father Charles Gorman. He was an army chaplain during World War I, but when overseas, he lost his health. On his return, he was hospitalized and died shortly after the ending of the war. Another one of my teachers in that school was Mr. J. J. Hogan of Eganville, who also later became a priest. Reverend J.J. J. Hogan, who died a few years ago. His last parish, which he served was St. Lawrence O'Toole in Barry's Bay. One summer, which I can especially remember, was when I was about eight years old and my sister Mary was 10. We were both attending catechism in preparation for our first Holy Communion. It was being taught by the priest, Right Reverend B.J. Yankovsky, at the Church of St. Stanislaus Koska in Wilno which was about six miles from our farm. That summer, Mother was confined to bed with inflammatory rheumatism and suffered very much, so she could not do any of the usual work. Mary and I had to help with the farm chores. Seven cows had to be milked by hand. Mary milked four, and I milked three because I was younger. We also fed chickens little calves, pigs, etc., and then got ourselves ready to walk six miles to attend catechism class, which started at nine o'clock. I do not remember any of us ever being late. This we had to do twice a week. On our return home in the afternoon, we were not considered tired, so we had other work to do such as weeding the big garden, hoeing potatoes, or exterminating potato bugs. I'm afraid we were not too severe with the bugs. Very often, we just shook them off the plants, only to have them return in just a few more hours.
0: The boys were growing up and would soon be going out on their own, so my father decided to sell the farm and move to the village of Barry's Bay. He bought considerable property between Stafford and Bay Street, and also some property on the east side of the railroad tracks that used to run from the main rail line to the sawmill at the lake. The property on Bay Street was bought from the late James who who owned the first hotel in Barry's Bay, where the Esso service station now stands. The hotel, which stood at the corner of Apiango Road and Bay Street, was demolished a few years ago to give a better view to motorists driving around the corner. Drones Hotel was part and parcel of the town. How we hated to see it go down. Father built a new home on Stafford Street, a house similar to the one we had on the farm. In the fall of 1904, we moved to Barry's Bay and began a new chapter in our lives, meeting and making new friends, adjusting ourselves to living close to neighbors, whereas we'd been used to living far apart on the farm. Barry's Bay was a small village then, and we were soon friends with practically all of the inhabitants, the good old Irish families as well as the Polish. I remember with pleasure the genuine friendships of the Jordan family, the Drowans, Billings, Finleysons, Bowen's, Dolan's, Murray's, Kitzes, Sullivan's, Toop's, Inglis's, Kerwin's, Mahans, Smith's, Conlins, George's, who were the in-laws of our famous Dr. McDermott, the Daley's, Potter's, McRae's, Prince's, Chepesky's, Zilneys, Ritzes. Bernatsky's, Magawis, Dota's, and Stafford's. The first concern of our parents was to enroll us as pupils in the separate school in Barry's Bay, which was situated on Opiongo Road, at the place where now stands the residence of Mr. and Mrs. Dominic Coolis. I still distinctly remember my first day at this school. It was just before Christmas, 1904, and the weather was cold and plenty of snow. I was quite excited and felt somewhat shy. After all, I was just a country girl, and the pupils of this school were sophisticated ones who lived in town, leading a different kind of life. We went to school early, but the door was locked, and we stood shivering. Before long, more children arrived, waiting for the door to open. Among them was a girl, Julia Chepesky, whose family had moved recently from Renfrew. She made friends with me and acquainted me with the other pupils, a kinder heart I have never met. We soon became very good friends, and to this day, I carry a very special spot in my heart for Julia. She married Frank Yacoboski, who is for many years our funeral director. One of their family is our present member of provincial parliament, Mr. Paul Yacoboski. After many years of ill health, Julia died about 10 years ago, but I still remember her kindness to me that first school day in Barry's Bay. My first teacher was Miss Barry from Morrisburg. I did not have her long as she was leaving at Christmas time, but I became very fond of her. I went to the station to see her off, and later she sent me a postcard, which I treasured for a long time, looking at it and reading it from time to time. There was a school concert in the making when I started to attend school. Miss Barry gave me a short part in it, a few words, but I attended every practice. The next teacher was Miss Rachel Whalen of Brudenell. She later entered the convent of St. Joseph's Order and was known by the name of Sister Rachel.
2: Shortly after our family had moved to Barry's Bay, my parents were again occupied in doing good deeds. The parish church was about a mile and a half from the village, but there was no presbytery for the accommodation of priests, so our home was made available to the parish priest and other priests who would be coming to help at 40 hours or any other special occasion. That is, until such time as a little home was built for them beside the old church, which had been built in 1896. Later on, when a new church was built in the village in 1914, St. Hedwig's. And while awaiting the building of the presbytery of that church, the priest, Reverend Peter Bernatsky, made his home with us. Father Peter remained as a parish priest of St. Hedwig's until the time of his death in 1958. During this time, he did much for the parish in general, For the young people, he brought in movies as entertainment when these were just in their infancy. Entertainment such as concerts for St. Patrick's Day or Christmas time, which he also supervised himself. Bazaars for the grown-ups and annual picnics. He spared nothing in these being a success. It was wonderful how the people responded to his confidence in their help for a week Preparation went on to prepare food. Two women were appointed to canvass the town for donations, and I was a canvasser many times. A special train came from Ottawa about 10 in the morning for the convenience of picnickers from Ottawa, Prior, Renfrew, Eganville, and all the stations en route. A band also arrived on that train and had a long parade formed from the railroad station to St. Hedrick's picnic grounds. A special feature was the baseball game between Barry's Bay and always one other town. Father Peter was the pitcher for Barry's Bay and when he was on the mound, his team usually won. Other players that stand out were Thomas P. Murray, who later became our Member of Provincial Parliament.
1: Before I go on, I would like to mention a few of the old fashioned customs which were so dear to the Polish people and which they had brought with them from Poland. Whenever any visitor entered your home, his first words were pokvaloni Jezus Christus. May Jesus Christ be praised. And the people of the house replied <laughs> <laughs> "Nawiaki Vyakov Amen, forever and ever, amen. What a beautiful way of beginning your visit. When going away from a home, you would say, Bons Stay with God. These old customs are now replaced with such expressions as, Good morning, good day, good night, or goodbye. When somebody did you a favor or gave you something, you always said, May God repay you, instead of the thank you of nowadays. At the crossroads in the country, Kshizhovky, you would find a huge cross with the figure of Christ crucified. This was to denote the Catholicity of our country. I had heard somewhere that some of those wayside crosses were erected by the owners of the property they stood on as a token of thanksgiving for their family being spared death during an epidemic that spread throughout the area. I remember my parents always abstained from meat on Christmas Day, a thanksgiving for their family being spared during a pestilence. Another good old custom that stands out in my mind is the old-fashioned Polish Pustanocz, which was held, or you might say celebrated, when someone died. Hospitals were not available, so people spent months, and sometimes even years, in their sick beds at home. They were taken care of by their family or kind neighbors and friends, who came to spend nights with the sick, or to relieve the family and give them a chance to rest. The generosity and kindness of these neighbors, who often came from many miles to help, was something which we no longer experience as much in our modern age. When a person died, very often the coffin was made by a neighbor who was more gifted. People did not mind working all day at home and then spending the night at the home of mourning. The coffin was made of wide boards, which had to be planed. There were no planing mills. And after it was made from those boards, the coffin was covered with black cloth, sometimes felt, but more often just a black sateen, depending on what could be attained in the general store. The coffin was also lined with a white cotton material before a crucifix was tacked on to the coffin cover. All the neighbours within a radius of several miles assembled at the home of the Pustanats, or wake, preceding the funeral, All who could read brought with them their big hymn book called the Spievnik, containing hundreds of hymns for all occasions. Around a big table covered with white cloth sat the singers. Singing was led by one Valentine Czepesky, a very highly respected citizen of the community, who always sat in a prominent place behind the long table. Singing continued all through the night. The first hymn was usually He who casts himself under God's protection. Other hymns followed to God's glory, asking for God's mercy or proclaiming God's love. Hymns to God's mother or the saints, especially the patron saint of the deceased. As a climax, hymns portraying death and judgment. It all ended with the singing of the Angelus at six o'clock in the morning. There was a break at midnight. Lunch was served the singers relieved their throats. There was time for smoking and conversation. The youngsters liked the lunchtime best of all when it was their turn to eat and help themselves to some of the goodies which were a must at such an important occasion. All who did not sing, especially the youngsters who were not familiar yet with the hymns, were expected to keep silent and listen to the hymns. No talking or laughing was allowed and Lord help anyone who dared to break this rule he was soon put in his place by some elder. A person who is living yet as this story is being written, and who was also a leader of the Pustanats singing in later years, is my good friend and relative, Mr. John Blesky, who did not miss very many wakes in the area while they were still in vogue. John is now a great card shark, and spends the better part of many a night playing forty-five with his cronies, especially my brother, Pete Atmansky, whose special friend he is, probably because they have the same interests in their spare moments. Cards.
0: Was it because my reports from school were always good? Or by what quirk of fate had my parents consented that I should try the departmental examination for entrance to high school? So it was in June 1906, I went to Eganville to my entrance examination. It was necessary to go to Eganville, as there was no nearer place to write it at that time. I think it lasted three or four days. While in Eganville, I stayed with Mr. and Mrs. Alex Reeves, who lived near St. John's Church. I knew these people very well, as Mr. Reeves was the agent for the Singer Sewing Machine Company, and for many years traveled through our community on his business. He always stayed nights at our house and made his home in general with us while in the vicinity. Our presiding examiner was Mr. Scott, who had previously been our school inspector. He had suffered paralysis of his right arm and hand, and I remember how intrigued we kids were as we watched him attempting to pass out the exam papers. How his hand shook, but somehow he succeeded. I was successful in in passing my entrance examination. I believe it was through the kindly intercession of our parish priest, Reverend Bronislaus Jankowski, who was the parish priest at Wilno. But once a month he came up to Barry's Bay to say Mass, etc., as this was the mission of the Wilno parish. On these visits, he made his home at our house, as there was no presbytery yet built. In September 1906, after much ado, it was decided that I should attend classes in the convent of Mary Immaculate, Pembroke, which was in care of the Grey Sisters of the Immaculate Conception. Here I was initiated as a boarder. Classes, boarders' quarters, chapel, study hall, etc., were all under one roof, so we need never have gone outside. Only for the promenade we took each day, regardless of weather, for the good of our health. The Mistress of Borders, Sister Winifred, saw to it that we had this walk. For some reason, I was late starting classes in September, and when I arrived at the convent with my father, there was no room in Form 1. The classes were called Form 1, Form 2, and Form 3. When you finished Form 3, you had your entrance to normal school. That is, you were ready to attend teacher's college. The high school principal in the convent at that time was Sister Mary Teresa. She decided to let me start in Form 2, since there was no room in Form 1, and so she became my teacher. It was, no doubt, rather tough skipping one whole year, but with her good help and her interest in me, I succeeded in obtaining my entrance to normal school in two years. I owe so much to Sister Mary Teresa, who always had my interest at heart and was so very kind to me. It's never too late for thanks. Thank you, Sister Mary Teresa. I was perhaps the first Polish student in the convent school of Mary Immaculate. So whenever a visitor would come to the convent classroom, they were always told there was a Polish girl. Then invariably I heard Sister say, Elizabeth, would you please stand up? I was then put through a barrage of questions. Sometimes I used to feel that I would have appreciated it if the ground had opened up under me. Perhaps at the time, I did not appreciate being singled out as the poor Polish girl. I still remember my journey to Pembroke in September 1906. It was to be my first time away from home for any lengthy period. My good father accompanied me. We started early in the morning by train at somewhere around 7 o'clock. It was called the mixed train. Part of it was for passengers and part for freight. So when any freight was unloaded or loaded, the passengers had to stand and wait. When the train got to Golden Lake Station, it had to wait for two or three hours for a through passenger train from Ottawa to Barry's Bay. The mixed then picked up passengers off that train who were going to Pembroke. By now, it was about noon. It took the mixed train two or three hours to get to Pembroke, and after arriving, you could not return home till the next morning using the same procedure. During my two years as a boarder student at the convent school, being in contact with many different personalities, I learned a great deal about human nature, how to get along with people, to respect their views, whether I agreed with them or not. I found you had to give a little, as well as take a little in order to live peaceably and amicably. When holidays came, it was hard to leave friends and go home. Besides my regular studies at the convent school, I took lessons in French, which I enjoyed immensely. Every month, merit cards were given to those who made good progress. It pleased my boastful pride to say that I received one nearly every month. Whereas the visiting priest presented other pupils with theirs, mine was always handed to me by the bishop, who was then His Excellency Narciss Zephrin Lorraine, probably because my parish priest did not visit very often. The bishop knew my father from his visits to our parish at Confirmation time. Several times this good bishop invited me to his office in the palace, just for a little talk. I did not realize at the time how honored I should have felt to be noticed by such an important person, the Bishop of the Diocese. But my life at the Convent of Mary Immaculate was soon coming to an end. I had finished the prescribed three-year course in two years. In June 1908, I graduated and received my entrance to normal certificate at the same time being the winner of the gold medal for general proficiency
2: from my class. During my years in Pembroke, changes were also taking place at home. My oldest brother, Frank, was married just before we left our farm in 1904 to Catherine Chapla, and they lived near us in Barry's Bay. Allen had married in nineteen oh six to Magdalene Blank and also lived in Barry's Bay. In May nineteen oh eight I received word that my sister Mary was to be married with a request that I come home for the marriage and to be her bridesmaid. It was not a very good idea to leave class at that time of year, just before graduation, but I dutifully accepted the request and at Mary's marriage to Anthony Micah, I was bridesmaid. They lived to celebrate their golden anniversary on May 19th, 1958, at which occasion they both had their original groomsman, Angus Micah, and their bridesmaid, me. I attended Teachers College, originally called the Ottawa Normal School, during the 1908-1909 term. During this time, I boarded at the Maison Mère des Sœurs Gris de la Croix, the mother house of the Grey Sisters of the Cross, located at what was then known as Water Street, but now Briere Street, renamed after the founder of the Grey Sisters. A friend of mine, Josephine Whalen, and I were given a private room where we could study undisturbed by other boarders, until later when Jose decided to move to a private room. And I, preferring company, moved into the regular boarders' quarters. Almost all the girls were French. Prayers were said in French. So what I learned in Pembroke of the French language came in very handy. Jose Whelan entered the St. Joseph community and taught for many years in the North Bay community. And I believe has just lately retired. She is a sister of J.T. Whelan who is well known in Barry's Bay. While in Ottawa, I became acquainted with Sister Loyola who was a sister of the well-known Father Ed Devine. At that time, she was teaching an elementary class at the Mother House. She was a great artist, and in spite of her busy schedule, she did a great deal of painting, often coming to my room for a talk. She would bring her painting and do it while we talked. In later years, Sister Loyola was posted to the martyr's shrine at Midland where she did some wonderful painting. Among them are two big pictures over the side altars in the church, one depicting the massacring of the Jesuits by the Iroquois, and the other painting a missionary saying mass out in the open for the Indians. A few years ago, shortly before she died, Sister Loyola sent me one of her paintings, a picture of the Sacred Heart. It is the greatest treasure I possess. In June 1909, I passed my examinations successfully at the Normal School and was granted an interim certificate for two years, which read, during good behavior. After two years of successful teaching, I would obtain my permanent certificate, which I did in due time. My school days were now over, and I was ready to make use of my education by imparting it to others. I did not have difficulty in obtaining a school. The Reverend Isaiah French, parish priest of St. Andrews in Killaloo, was also in charge of the Mission Church of St. Lawrence O'Toole in Barry's Bay and was well known to our family. The teacher in the separate school in Killaloo was leaving, intending to enter convent. Her name was Miss Nolan. Father French very kindly approached me, or rather (coughs) my parents, and as I was hired for the year 1909-1910 at an annual salary of $375, paid semi-annually. First payment came at Christmas time, and the second and last in June. Not so long ago, Sister Regina Neffen sent me a clipping, which I here insert. This will give you an idea of the contract you were under in the good old days. It might be a little exaggerated, but on the whole it's pretty accurate. Except, Miss Jones received a salary double mine.
1: (laughs) This is an agreement between Miss Lottie Jones' teacher and the Board of Education of Middletown School. Thereby, Miss Lottie Jones agrees to teach in Middletown School for a period of eight months beginning September 1, 1923. The Board agrees to pay Miss Lottie Jones the sum of $75 per month. Miss Jones agrees. One. Not to be married. This contract becomes null and void immediately if the teacher marries. Two not to keep company with men. Three, to be home between the hours of 8 p.m. and 6 a.m. unless she is in attendance at a school function. Four, not to loiter downtown in ice cream parlors. Five, not to leave town at any time without the permission of the Chairman of the Board of Trustees. Six, not to smoke cigarettes. This contract becomes null and void immediately if the teacher is caught smoking. Seven, not to drink beer, wine, or whiskey. This contract becomes null and void immediately if the teacher is found drinking beer, wine, or whiskey. Eight, not to ride in a carriage or automobile with any man except her brothers or father. Nine, not to dress in bright colors. 10, not to dye her hair. 11, to wear at least two petticoats. 12, not to wear dresses more than two inches above the ankle. And finally 13, to keep the schoolroom clean, to sweep the classroom floor at least once daily to scrub the classroom floor once a week with hot soap and water, to clean the blackboards at least once daily, to start the fire at 7 a.m. so that the room will be warm by 8 a.m. when the children arrive, and to carry out the ashes at least daily. And one more, not to use face powder, mascara, or paint the
0: lips. On August 16, 1909, just a few days before I began my teaching in Killaloo, an important event took place. My sister Mary and her husband, Anthony Micah, became the happy parents of a baby boy. He was born at their home. As there was no priest stationed there, the Right Reverend Bronislaus Jankowski of Wilno came up to Barry's Bay and baptized the child. I was asked to be the sponsor in the baptism. It was my first time. My brother Frank and I stood for the child who was baptized Ambrose Rock Micah. And when he grew up, he became Father Ambrose Micah. And a few years ago, was invested with the title of domestic prelate and is now the right Reverend Ambrose Micah, pastor of St. Hedwig's Church. I feel more than honored to be godmother to such a prominent personage, a godson and nephew who is at present present my parish priest." Killaloo Separate School was a comparatively large school for a beginner, as well as being ungraded. That is, the classroom consisted of all grades from one to entrance to high school, with an attendance of approximately 50 pupils. Monthly reports had to be prepared and were given out to the pupils each month by the parish priest, Reverend Isaiah French who visited the school often and never failed to be present on report day. Beside the regular schoolwork, it was was required of me to teach catechism on Sundays to the children of the parish. For benediction on Sunday at seven o'clock, the children sat together in the church and the teacher's duty was to sit with them to supervise their behavior. For all these duties, I was paid $375 for the first year. At the end of the first year, the board decided to raise my salary to $500 to be paid out in the same manner as the first year. Thus, I remained in Killaloo till the end of June, 1911. At that time, I had successfully taught for two years and was granted a permanent second-class certificate. I now had many friends in Killaloo and liked to be there, but it was always my idea that it is not good for a young teacher to remain too long in one school, so my next field of labor was in the old Wilno Separate School. It was near the old church of St. Stanislav Kostka, about a mile south of the present beautiful church of St. Mary's. This was quite a difficult school to teach, as there were almost twice as many pupils as on the daily attendance roll. But children stayed at home to help out in turns. Johnny one day and Mary the next day, a turnabout affair intended by the parents to educate both children, while at the same time helping at home. We did the best we could for them. I taught in this school for two years. Each year, the salary was a little higher. I have many happy memories from my stay in Wilno. The right Reverend Bronislaus Lajkowski who had been parish priest there from the time he arrived as a newly ordained priest sometime around the year 1892. According to my mother, the first child Father Yankovsky baptized after coming to Wilno was my brother Peter. Later becoming a Monsignor, Father Yankovsky spent the whole of his priestly life as parish priest in Wilno. We can only picture the hardships he experienced visiting the sick, very often being called out in the darkness of night to travel primitively to outlying parts of the parish. He himself taught catechism to prepare children for First Holy Communion and confirmation. Many times he was called to come to homes to baptize children. No matter how difficult the journey, he was never known to say no. No. The school where I taught in Wilno, being near the church, I had opportunity to visit Monsignor during the noon recess. He invited me many times to have dinner with him. This was an honor I feel I should have appreciated more. God bless him for the many kind words of wisdom and advice I received from him. While teaching in Wilno, I boarded for two years with a young couple, Mr. and Mrs. Frank Schulist. Mrs. Schulest was the daughter of the famous Adam Prince, who was the man in Wilno at the time of its making. He was a storekeeper, one of the first in that area, situated at Prince's Corners, just east of the present day St. Mary's Church. A little section of his store was converted into a post office with pigeonholes for letters and other mail and a desk for post office business below. All this behind the regular store counter Mr. Prince was also the notary public, politician, counselor, go-between, in any family or neighborhood misunderstanding. Being forthright in his decisions, it did not take him long to settle disputes. If need be, a cuss word was used to impress the final decision. In the spring of 1913, Mr. and Mrs. Schulist purchased the Exchange Hotel in Wilno. In November of that year, a son, Sylvester was born, but Mrs. Shulist died when he was 10 months old. A very good friend of mine, Eva Sulfer of Renfrew, married Mr. Shulist in October 1915, and under her good care, Sylvester grew up to be a fine young man. He entered the seminary and studied for the priesthood. He's a great orator from the pulpit, a gift no doubt inherited from his grandfather, Mr. Prince. Many a time I rocked him to sleep or played with him when he was a baby. At present, Father Schulist is a widely known parish priest of Portage du Fort. The year, 1910, was one of great importance to the people of Barry's Bay, and especially Polish parishioners of the Little Mission Church. On December 10, 1910, a native of this area, Peter B. Bernatsky, son of August Bernatsky and Mary Poplinski, was ordained to the priesthood. He was believed to be the first native Canadian-born Polish priest to be ordained. He was ordained at Wilno and set his first solemn high mass in the Mission Church at Barry's Bay. After the church ceremony, there was a huge banquet at the Bernatski home, about a mile distant from the outskirts of town. The Bernatski family was known for their hospitality at all times. Needless to say, they went all out for this very special occasion. A few years later, Father Bernatsky became our parish priest, which position he held till his death in 1958. During his pastorship, the new St. Hedwig's Church was built, also the presbytery, the convent, and a new separate school. To his untiring efforts, we also owe him the existence of the St. Francis Memorial Hospital.
2: When there's a wedding in the offing, nowadays, we receive invitations through the mail for a bridal shower, the wedding reception, etc., with a slip-on, which you see four letters. R.S.V.P. Repondez, s'il vous plait. Reply, if you please. This is for the purpose that the wedding host might gauge the number of plates to be served at a certain hotel or restaurant. But this is not the case in the olden days. First of all, every neighbor within radius of 10 miles were invited personally by the Druzba or groomsman about 2 weeks before the wedding. The Druzba traveled on foot, armed with a pistol and an umbrella, decorated with a flower from whatever was available in the garden. The umbrella was protection against any rain he might run into in his travels. The pistol was a signal instrument to indicate to the farmers of his coming. He looked very formal, but as he approached, bang went the pistol. Mother would come out the door, glancing around to see which direction he was advancing. Children ran outside from curiosity but would soon disperse through bashfulness. The menfolk stopped their work and entered the house. Here, the druzba very properly stepped over the threshold and stopped there, stood straight as a post, and very importantly, recited druzba, which was the invitation to the wedding feast extended to them from the bride's parents. He reminded them of the honor conferred on them by this invitation, told of the splendid menu at the bridal feast, and the wonderful entertainment for them at the reception. He then spoke the traditional Polish words of
1: greeting:
2: And everyone replied:
1: Nawiaki Vyakov, Amen.
2: He was then given a chair and was treated to a drink and sometimes lunch and then he proceeded to the next home. Can you imagine how fagged he would have been after travelling thus for two weeks? <laughs> the wedding was always celebrated at the, at the bride's home and dancing went on for two or three days. There was always plenty to eat. No RSVP was needed to determine the number of plates served. The first time I danced at one of those weddings was in 1911 at Wilno. An old couple were getting married, a Mrs. Mariana Prince and Mr. Virch Lehovich, both around 70 years old. I paid many a visit to their home, You are always welcome no matter what hour of day.
1: I taught in the Wilno Separate School for two years from August 1911 to June 1913. I had more weekend freedom as I did not have to teach catechism on Sundays so I could come home more often to spend my weekend. My two uncles, my mother's brothers, Frank and Robert Kedrowski, lived in Chicago with their young families. They were frequent summertime visitors to our home and were anxious that some of the members of our family should then visit them in Chicago. During my summer holidays in 1913, I decided to go back to Chicago with them after their visit with us. So in August 1913, I took my first long trip by train to Chicago with Uncle Rob and Aunt Elizabeth Kiedrovsky. They lived in a beautiful home in the southern part of the city. Uncle Rob, who had been an employee of the railway company all his life, held a very responsible position in the office of the rail yards. They had two sons, Raymond, who was eight, and Robert, who was born while I was visiting them. I did not like city life and longed for some of the fresh air of our good outdoors. The American people are exceedingly friendly, and I made many friends, but after four months of this pleasant visit, I returned home, traveling alone by train via Scotia Junction. Shortly after returning, I met a man who was later to become my husband, Alexander Shalla. A couple of months later, I accepted a position as teacher in a country school, Number Ten Haggerty, about five miles out of Wilno. It was a small school with approximately fifteen pupils. I boarded with Mr. and Mrs. Danislaus who lived about a mile and a half from the school. There was no public road open, so you had to walk in the deep snow across the fields. Although it was very quiet in the country, I did not find it monotonous. Mrs. Grich was a very interesting woman who always knew the right thing to say or do at a certain time. She loved to read to me in my room before going to bed. This lady also taught me how to crochet, to while away long winter evenings. I made lace centerpieces and other articles for myself and my friends. Mrs. Grich showed me how to make my spare time more useful. In September 1914, I was engaged to teach in Wilno Separate School once more. By now, the teacher's salary was a little better. I received $800 for the term 1914 to 1915.
0: August 1914 was the beginning of the First World War. Many young men volunteered to serve in the Army and went away to training camps. Among them were my brother Peter and his good friend Frank Lukasavich. How hard it was to say goodbye to them when they were leaving for overseas. Peter was wounded at Vimy Ridge in April 1917, but was fortunate enough to return home when the war ended. Frank did not return. He made the supreme sacrifice. During the war, all food was rationed. You obtained a certain number of coupons and ration books, and you were allowed so much food as was stated on them. As soon as the war started, prices went up on everything, so many people hoarded flour, sugar, tea, and other commodities. But most people abided by the ration method. This was a small sacrifice compared to what our poor boys had to endure in the war zone overseas. It was the summer holidays, 1915. I was now 24 years old. In those days, there was not much future for a teacher. Classes were large. The pay was poor. I decided to make the big step. Alex and I were married on August 10, 1915, in the newly built church of St. Hedwig's in Barry's Bay by Reverend Peter B. Bernatsky. Our groomsman was Alex's brother, Joseph Shala, and our bridesmaid was my sister, Susan Mansky, who would later become Mrs. Peter A. Coolis, and who now lives next door to me and is my moral support in my weak moments. At that time in 1915, there were only two cars in Barry's Bay. One belonged to Father Peter Bernatsky, and the other one was owned by Mr. Drone. Father Peter very graciously requested that he drive us to church to be married, so I was the first bride in Barry's Bay to ride in a car to church to be married. Up to then, it was by horse and buggy. Father Bernatsky was staying at my parents' home at the time, which was the reason for this great favor. I did not have one of those big Polish weddings. There was a dinner for the immediate family. No dancing. The next day, we moved into our own home, a house we rented from my father. That evening, I cooked our supper on our own. Our guest for the occasion was my brother, Peter, who was always ready to stand by and make things pleasant. I was now a housewife, and my good husband was the breadwinner, a laborer who worked for the Murray and Omanic Lumber Company in the sawmill at the lake shore for a wage of one and a half dollars a day. You really had to economize. There was no such thing as a payment plan to buy your furniture. You bought only when you had the money to pay immediately. If not, you did without it, until such time as you could afford to pay. However, we did it. We seemed to live comfortably and enjoyed entertainments and outings which necessitated spending. On May 24th, 1916, we became the parents of a baby boy, Adolph John. Barry's Bay did not have a doctor. There were no nursing homes, much less a hospital. Therefore, children were born at home. We were very fortunate to have a lady midwife, Mrs. Mary Ritza, who was doctor and nurse, a most wonderful woman who always found time in sickness or need, if it mattered not whether it was day or night. She always came and was never known to say no this lady should receive the world's medal for charity. She had attended hundreds of births, besides nursing sick children and people in general. She possessed no medical degree, no nursing diploma. She did not need one. She gained all her knowledge from experience and used it wisely. She took very little recompense for her work. Mrs. Ridska has long ago gone to her eternal reward with the wish of her many patients that she possess a very special place in heaven, as long as you did it for one of my little ones. She is fondly remembered by hundreds of grateful mothers as they tell their daughters about this special lady who attended them at birth. Mrs. Ridska was the grandmother of Reverend Father Leonard Ritzka, at present chaplain at St. Francis Memorial Hospital in Barry's Bay.
2: About a month after my marriage, I was asked by the board of the public school section number 16 Jones Township, which was the little school at what was called Siberia, to teach there. The school inspector had objected to the teacher who was there because she was not a qualified teacher. I taught in that school until Christmas 1915. This was the end of my teaching career for many years to come. I was happy to get back into my home and take up my household duties again. My husband was away at work a great deal of time and would be home for Sundays only. There were no weekends as we have now. The work week lasted six days. Sometimes men had to walk for many miles to be home for Sunday, returning to work again on Sunday afternoon. I was kept busy with my housework, caring for my little son, helping out with the parish work. Doesn't seem so long ago, but Adolf's hair is now gray at the temples. He's a sergeant in the police force and at present lives with his family in Levac, Ontario. On December 30th, 1917, Genevieve Francis was born. The same dear lady, Mrs. Retza, was the midwife, doctor and nurse, She was also the godmother for baby Genevieve Francis. As years went by, Genevieve became Sister Conrad in the St. Joseph's community. After duties at several parishes, she is now music teacher at St. Joseph's Convent in Barry's Bay and the organist at St. Hedwig's and superior of the convent in Barry's Bay. With two small children, I was kept occupied especially so because ready-made clothing for children was not available. So I had to sew their dresses, suits, and coats, and in fact, all the clothes they wore. There was also work in the garden. Each resident owned a parcel of land on which stood the house. In the back, there was room for planting a garden, a patch of potatoes, beds of carrots, beets, beans, lettuce, cucumbers, radishes, and rows of corn. There were pens for chickens and pigs and a good many kept a cow to provide the family with milk and butter and nice fresh buttermilk when the butter was churned, which was done by hand with a dasher in a small slim churn. A first cow was a jersey, a gift from my parents. The cows were pastured in the bush and open fields near the village and had to be brought home for milking in the summer. Food had to be kept cold with ice, as there were no refrigerators. Ice was cut in the early spring, usually March, in huge (coughs) blocks on the lake and was packed in the ice house and covered with sawdust to insulate it against melting. Meat was packed and salted or smoked so that it did not require refrigeration. The year 1918 was one to be remembered. For some, it brought a measure of happiness. The First World War, which had taken so many young lives from among us, came to an end on November 11th, 1918. Sons were coming home, some maimed and crippled or emotionally ill, but they returned. Some did not. My brother Peter had been hospitalized with shrapnel wounds in his side, wounded in the Battle of Vimy Ridge in April 1917. He has walked with a limp since then. Pete's pal, Frank Lukasavich, who fought beside him, was killed at Vimy Ridge. For his family, as well as for many other families who lost their sons, the war, its end and return of the soldiers was a poignant experience. These returned men very seldom talk about their experiences overseas. That fall of 1918 was also noted for the epidemic of Asiatic flu. Whole families were stricken at a time with no one to care for them. It was then that people showed themselves to be true neighbors in the real sense of the word. They did what they could to help those families who were ill and bedridden. They prepared food and did the most necessary things in the house. Other things could wait. My husband was ill with the flu and pneumonia, and the children were ill as well. Although I was ill also, I was obliged to care for the others. The doctor told me one day that I would die unless I took care of myself. I did not die. We owe a great deal to our wonderful doctor, the late Dr. J.P. McDermott, who so diligently attended all his sick. Dr. McDermott lived in Killaloo, but looked after a large territory including Barry's Bay, Wilno, Brudenell Palmer Rapids, and other surrounding places. In spite of the fact that when he arrived in Barry's Bay, he made his rounds on foot every day. He never said he was tired. God bless him. It is due to his complete dedication as a doctor that only two people in Barry's Bay died from the flu or its complications.
0: Many happenings have escaped my memory and have not been mentioned in the proper time, in the proper place in my story. One of these is about our St. Francis Memorial Hospital, which was opened in November 1960. To tell about it, I must begin with our then parish priest, the Right Reverend Peter B. Bernatsky, who at all times had the good of the people at heart. He was a man of vision, and he dreamed and hoped for a hospital in Barry's Bay for his people. No one knows the efforts he put forth to have this dream come true. The trips he made to contact the powers that be, to make the necessary arrangements and obtain the necessary permissions, take care of the financial end, and many other things we shall never know about. Other communities were reluctant to get involved as they believed the hospital would never become a reality. It seemed impossible for such a small place like Barry's Bay. In his own parish, Monsignor Bernatsky was involved in everything. He was the driving force, and as a rule, his parishioners never failed him. Donations to the hospital fund were solicited. Some gave small donations, others large ones according to their means. A parcel of land was purchased by Mr. Henry Czepesky and donated as a site for the hospital. It was in July 1948 that Monsignor asked me if I could organize a St. Francis Memorial Hospital Auxiliary, its chief aim to raise money. Of course, I could not say no. As I have so often said, I knew nothing about any rules and regulations for setting up fundraising organizations such as an auxiliary. To begin with, we had no bylaws, no financial standing, But as everything that exists in this world has a beginning, so the St. Francis Memorial Hospital Auxiliary had a beginning. Armed with a five-cent scribbler and a pen or pencil, I don't remember which, we called our first meeting in July 1948.
1: That was over 12 years before the hospital opened, and nearly 60 years later, it's still open. Thanks to people such as Elizabeth Catherine Atmansky or as many of us knew her, Mrs. Shala, our grade three teacher, our historian, our advocate for the Polish language, our observer of our culture, or simply as our grandmother. But back then, few of us knew her as one of the great unsung heroes and community builders of this area. Yes, she was a Polish Canadian, the daughter of some of those first Polish settlers who came to Canada, and the real reason we here along the Opole line cherish our Polish heritage, culture, and traditions. It's a culture, a heritage made of such people as Elizabeth Catherine Lansky, Mrs. Shadow. Today's show was performed by Kristin Marshall, Karen MacGaskill, and myself, Michael Siegel Chester, and starring many of Mrs. Shaw. I wish I could tell you right now that in closing, I have a beautiful. Dish full of console pad. Hands up if you know what a console pad Okay, so bread dough made into a twister, deep fried, and sprinkled with brown sugar. And how often, Mary and Peter and Gerard, and maybe anybody else, has had a good thing like that. But when we see our aunt Catherine coming across the back field from Granny's to our house, with the white enamel dish with the blue ring around it, and whatever the whatever color it was, with tea towels with fresh clothes like that and, and size breaking with brown sugar. And of course, uh, my grandmother did teach some of us Polish in the 1970s as well, well after she had retired from school teaching, and she would gather a little group in her kitchen on Wednesdays when I was about in grade five. Catherine would bring out the tang. <laughs> And we'd have a few cookies, and we'd get the old readers that Monsignor Micah would bring from the church, and we'd practice our Polish lessons and learn all sorts of the verb tenses and vocabulary that came with us. And very often, there were several of us in the group. Uh, One student also in that group was Susan Prince. And Susan uh, used to speak many Polish words, and, you know, knowing now that we call that Kashub. And very often when we were saying words with Grandma in Polish because she wanted us to learn Polish, she would say things like kot being cat. And then she would say to Susan, how would you say that? And Susan would say kwet. And so we were learning then the connection between both Polish and Kashub at that time. We owe a special debt of gratitude to the entire Glovczewski, Shala, and Atmanski families of Barry's Bay and Wilno for allowing us to read from Mrs. Shala's unpublished memoir. It was an honour not soon to be forgotten. Tonight's show was produced by Barry Conway for the Apiango Readers Theatre in association with the Apiango Senior Center and the Station Keepers, a local volunteer organization in Barry's Bay dedicated to the preservation and promotion of our culture, our heritage. Good night and good luck. Bugza bonzboyem. bons
0: That concludes our show. We hope you enjoyed it, and we look forward to having you come back and visit us here at the old Barrys Bay Railway Station again next Sunday evening, when we'll tell you a little more about the very unique culture and heritage of the Madawaska Valley. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching a number of new segments here on the Apiango Line, your Sunday night podcast, about one of the most interesting parts of Canada you probably don't know much about. One is called Shabin, and it will introduce you to some of our better toe-tapping roots musicians who know a thing or two about how to strike up a traditional tune in ways that you've probably never heard them played before. And then there's something we're calling rural roots. Imagine if we piled you into the back of a beat-up old half-ton truck and took you flying down some of our old dirt roads and deep into the forested countryside. Well, you'd end up in some pretty interesting, if not sacred, places that we still cherish up here in the upper Madawaska Valley. Our show today was produced by Barry Conway, and for all of the Station Keeper volunteers who make this, the Apiango Line podcast, possible, I'm Kristen Marchand, wishing you a good day from the Madawaska Valley.